Okay, we're going to uh, take questions. Well, Glenn Osmer has his hand up, so we'll start with him. <laughs> Excellent. I really appreciate it, and I totally agree with you. What kind of weight, um, or do you give any uh, weight uh, to the Coptic uh, or foreign translations rather than just Greek manuscripts that seem to go back clear to the middle of the second century that include 9 to 20. Uh, I mean, did, I, I know we're not, we're talking just Greek manuscripts, but do you personally uh, give any weight to foreign translations uh, and that kind of evidence for right. the existence of 9 to Yes, absolutely. In fact, that was originally in my presentation, my first presentation, but I cut it out for the sake of time, is that way back there, uh, really early, uh, the Bible, the New Testament, was translated into Latin, uh, called, they, they call them the Old Latin versions, and then, uh, because later, uh, Jerome in the 5th century made the Vulgate, you may be familiar with, um, but other languages the New Testament was translated in, uh, Syriac, Armenian, uh, Gothic, uh, a, a number of different languages. And the, uh, a strong predominance of those versions have verses 9 through 20. And though, yes, I would put weight on those. In fact, anyone who argues for Mark 16, 9 through 20 does put weight on those translations. It's just for the sake of time I left them out. But uh, it is a fact, just to be honest, it is a fact that there are some of those manuscripts and some copies of them, and there are actually a lot of copies of some of them, a fairly good sized num co number of copies of some of them, that uh, do have uh, the verses missing. And again, um, if, if you go into all the, the background of that, again, the, the stream or the origin of that problem seems to go back to the realm, to the region of Egypt. And, uh, but yes, to answer your question, yes. I would. I just didn't today. Alan Bonifay. That was great, David. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, brother. Uh, I want to ask you something that's a, a little broader than this, but maybe part of this also. And, and I think we talked about this in Columbia as well. Uh, you mentioned that you were, uh, I think you said early on in the first talk you were in favor of the critical text. And text is an issue we haven't really explored very much because we don't have anybody except you who knows enough to talk about it. Uh, but it's a different question than translations. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I noticed you mentioned that 99.9 percent .9 of the extant manuscripts that include Mark 16 include the long ending. So uh, what is to be said? in favor of or against, if you can say quickly, uh, the majority manuscript as opposed to Metzger's and others reconstructed text, and what do you mean by critical text? Well, I'll try to answer that quickly, as you said, Alan. Um, what we're talking about is you're taking, I'm just going to put M up here for manuscript, and you've got many, many manuscripts in which the Bible, New Testament, let's say, was copied again and again and again and again and again down through the centuries. And with the passing of centuries, some of these perished, sometimes only part of them perished, 
and part of it survived and some of them just completely were lost but a few as time goes on survives and the farther you go down the centuries, the more and more of these manuscripts survive. That's what you would expect to happen. You know, there are a lot more 67 Chevys around than there are Model T's because they're just older and they're more likely to survive from a later time. What, what has been done, like in the 1500s, I was going to do this shortly, uh, in the 1500s, a man by Desiderius Erasmus took seven manuscripts because that's all he had access to. And probably he knew of others, but he didn't have access to them. But he took seven manuscripts, or depending on who you follow, six, seven, or eight manuscripts. And uh, Erasmus, in, in, in about uh, 15, uh, 15, I'm not going to be able to say it here, in the early 1500s, I could say it any other time, but I can't right now. But in the early 1500s, he took seven of these manuscripts and he compiled them. What that means is, is since these manuscripts are hand-copied, it's only natural that there's going to be some differences between them because of just natural mistakes that people make. If you try to copy out the book of Mark, uh, you're going to make a mistake. And so what they do is they, he combed through these manuscripts, seven of them, in some cases he only had one manuscript for a certain part, and he pulled together what is called a base text. And it was done in order now for the first time to make a, make a printing on the printing press with the Greek Bible. And that, uh, that text, in time, came to be called the Textus Receptus. That text was the one the King James Version was based on. Now, what happened is, is in the 1600s, in the 1700s, the 1800s, and the 1900s, more and more manuscripts began to be discovered, and cataloged, and studied, and analyzed down through these centuries of time, so that, little by little, more and more of the variance, as the term is, between these manuscripts became isolated and analyzed and the result is in the 19th century they produced, starting really in England with the scholars Westcott and Hort published, a Greek text that has come to be called the critical text. Critical doesn't mean that they were criticizing something in a negative sense, it meant analyzing the passages. And so the critical text analyzing the differences, and there's been a lot, of, a lot of time spent and a lot of ink spilt over the variance in these manuscripts to come up with a, a, a text that is the result of the sifting process over time in which hundreds, and not just seven, but hundreds of manuscripts, and many of them much older and older than was used back here, uh, have been brought together to produce a text that those who compile the text, argue, was, is the more closer to the original. And then that's the critical text upon which the modern translations are based. So the modern translations are based on this text. The King James, New King James, the modern English version, and a couple of others are based still on the Textus Receptus. And so, to answer your question, I'm just trying to make clear what our terminology is about here. So when I say I rely on the critical text, I don't mean that I've completely dismissed what's back here. All I mean to say is that I appreciate the work that has been put in here because I know that hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of people have, been, have spent over accumulation of centuries analyzing these manuscripts and coming to the conclusion that is expressed in the critical text. A criticism and an analysis and a lot of scholarly effort that was not 
put in back here, not because they were sloppy, not because that they were negligent, but because back here they just didn't have the information that they have now. And so am I answering the question? Yes. What about the terms reconstructed text and, and majority text? Oh, majority text, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a third concept that people have, some scholars have, about the text. There's the TR, Textus Receptus, which just means the received text, the one that people accepted for three centuries from here to here. And then in the 20th century, there was a group of scholars, a small group of scholars, uh, Harstead, uh, Hodges and Farstead, who published a version that said, no, 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 no. We're not going to go through and analyze them like we did here. What we're going to do is we're going to gather all the manuscripts together, and we're going to, every time there's a difference, we're going to pick the one that occurs in the most manuscripts. And we're going to take the majority. And that has become called the majority text. And the majority text has no published translation, except that I know of, I, again, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's a published translation based on the majority text. But the Greek majority text by Hodges and Farstad is out there for anyone who wants to consult it. And uh, there is an online translation that's been done of it that I'm aware of. But that's, in a nutshell, quickly, the difference between these three texts. Now, that means that, oh, and the other part of that is, is that the majority text is, since the manuscripts that uh, comprise the majority are the most like the manuscripts that the TR grew out of, then, uh, then, then these two are very close to each other. In fact, hardly any difference, although I will say there are some differences that would definitely jump out at you if you saw a translation of this. But in general, they are closer together than these are, or these are. I think I've answered the question. This, this brother right here beside me. Uh, you had talked about the uh, problems that some people uh, ascertain between uh, verses 1 through 8 and verse 9 and alluding to Mary Magdalene. Uh, I, I think that that is very clear as a transition because in verse 1, it is referring to Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who brought spices. You're going here into a section where it is talking about Mary Magdalene alone, not the group. Yeah. So to me, that's insignificant. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but... Uh... I mean, the way you bring that up only just, I think, highlights, underscores the fact that some of these arguments about internal inconsistency and that kind of thing are really subjective. Uh, in other words, you can have that view just as easy as someone else can have an opposite view when it comes to these language issues. Um, and it's subjective. That's why I do really appreciate Lon's analysis with all the math that we pointed out, because that is objective information. That's mathematical. Although, when you start doing percentages and so forth, you've got to really be careful, and I didn't follow through 
tr trace it all the way out to the conclusion on some of it, but uh, I think the conclusions are, are quite enlightening. That that's one way to objectify the language issue in these passages. Matthew Schaefer. First off, Miller, I want to express my appreciation for one point you made in the first session. Uh, I, I've listened to Daniel Wallace's lectures on textual criticism as well, probably the same ones that yeah. you have. And I've heard his side of the argument about the, the blank space in Co Codex Vaticanus. I thought you handled that very well and you know, responded to his, his position in a way that I hadn't been able to myself. Thank you. Uh, as a question I wanted to follow up to, to what Glenn said earlier, Glenn uh, Osborne, since we've got a couple of Glenns, <laughs> um, uh, about the, the translations, the early translations of the New Testament. And I was curious if there are any translations, such as the Syriac or the Coptic, that have two editions, in a sense. If you, if you know of this, one that has the ending, one that does not. Uh, that occurred to me during the conversation, but I don't know if that's a very good. That. Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, uh, Ron Corder was asking me a similar question about that earlier, and I told him I have read on that, and like I said, I am not a trained textual critic for those on YouTube. I have not completed a PhD in textual criticism. I'm an armchair textual critic, or a shade tree textual critic, like we say. Um, so I'm in the learning process on some of this. Uh, the question Ron asked is similar to yours. I know there are discrepancies in the translations, and I know that there are, in some cases, translations in, and we talked about the ancient, we're talking about ancient translations here, uh, that in some of the languages there are manuscripts that have it and some that don't. And the question is why and all of that. I said all that simply to say I don't feel quite qualified to jump out and venture an answer to that at this point. Apologize for that. Austin Maddox. Thank you, brother. That was, uh, that was excellent. And Thank if you. I may put in a, a plug for the Midmo study here this coming year, I believe we're going to put a uh, presentation together on more of the, uh, the Texas Receptus and, uh, and the critical text. Historically yeah. speaking, correct? What was that last question? Um, you're going to put a present, uh, more in-depth presentation together on those. Yes, things. it's going to be. It's going to deal with this. Yes. So, which is more about the whole New Testament than it is about just this one passage. So, just a plug in for that. Uh, wait till March. I'm sure that presentation will be excellent, also. But um, could you go into the Freer Logion? Uh, you referenced that a few times. Uh, you mentioned. They can talk about that in Q&A. Um, we talk about that just a little bit. Yes. Well, I can. Um, let me get my glasses so I can see what presentation I'm pulling up here. It's from the first presentation. And uh, it was on, the first presentation was on external evidence. And uh, I referenced this thing called, let me put it up here, this thing called the Freer Logion. The Freer Logion is a little section that in some manu in, actually in one that survives. Now it was in more than one at one time in centuries ago. We know that because of quotes from early church leaders. But it only exists in one manuscript now. And this Freer Logion 
occurs in that manuscript, and according to the testimony of the fathers that I just mentioned, uh, was in other manuscripts in this same location between verses 14 and 15. Now that's within the longer ending. The longer ending is 9 through 20, but the Freologion in this one manuscript occurs between verse 14 and 15. In verse 14, Jesus rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, and then the Freologion says, and they excuse themselves, saying, this age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan, who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail over the unclean spirits, uh, things of the spirits, unclean things of the spirits, Therefore, reveal your righteousness now. Thus they spoke to Christ. And Christ replied to them. And frankly, this is the section of this Logion right here that everyone agrees is just way too uh, flamboyant, if I may say, to be anything that we know or recognize from a New Testament writer. Everyone agrees this is not original, the orange part. And here's part of the reason why it's so glaring, is this doesn't sound like anything Christ ever said. Listen. And Christ replied, The term of Satan's power has been fulfilled, and other terrible things draw near. And those who have sinned, for those who have sinned, I was handed over to death, that they may return to the truth and sin no more, that they may inherit the spiritual and imperishable glory of righteousness as in heaven. And then verse 15 resumes. Okay, this is in one manuscript that exists today. It's called... Codex W, Codex Washingtonianus. That's a fancy Latin way of saying that this manuscript is in Washington, D.C. That's all that means. It just tells us where it's at. So you can go to, when you go to your next trip to Washington, D.C. on vacation, you can go to the, to the institute there, and you can look at this manuscript where this occurs in the manuscript. Now, this statement existed and was known about for a long, long time before this manuscript was found and discovered and published in our modern time. We know that because of the ancient church leaders who talked about it in their writings, whose writings still survive and have for centuries. So it was known about and known about, and then all of a sudden in the early 20th century, uh, this manuscript came to light. And when they got to look, and there is that thing that Jerome was talking, I think it was Jerome, that Jerome was talking about. There it is. Here we found a manuscript from the 5th century that has it. Now, I don't know what you want me to say about this, but uh, Logion, just to tell you what the name is, it sounds kind of strange until you know, but Logion is just a Greek word that means statement or saying. And freer doesn't mean that it's freer or looser. Freer is the last name of a man by the name of Charles Freer who first owned the manuscript in the 20th century. So they call it the Freer Logion because it's the only manuscript, the only manuscript that we have that contains it is a manuscript that was originally owned by Charles Freer. And so I don't know George Batty. <coughs> I enjoyed your presentation, David. It was great. Um, Nathan, my son, is a bookseller. And so last week he introduced me to Lund's book for the first time. I'd never heard of this book. And he gave a great sales pitch for it. 
and I wish you would maybe do the same. Uh, he told me, and maybe you're familiar with this, but there was some critic who had formally written and taken a stand that the long ending should not be included, and uh, and then he changed his mind after reading Lunn, and um, uh, he suggested if anybody was like himself and believed those verses should not be in there, they need to read Lunn's uh, book. And I was just wondering if you're familiar with that endorsement that was given. I think it, I was under the impression it was an endorsement at the beginning of the book. Uh, but anyway, I would uh, I'd just like to hear your advertisement for, for the book. Well, I've given one about an hour and a half here. <laughs> I think what you might be referring to is on the back of the book, you know, they get the quotes from the peers of the author. You know, hey, this is a great book. Oh, it's just a wonderful thing. And that's what usually you find in those little blurbs on the back of books. And one of them was by Craig Evans, who is in the scholarship community. He didn't say that he changed his mind, but he says, but Lunn has really challenged my position on this. He would be in the, among those, Evans would be, among those who, I think, I hope I'm representing him correctly, Evans would be among those that are the predominant view that 9 through 20 doesn't belong. And he said, you know, Lunn's book has really, really challenged me on that. Now, if there's some other person in that caliber that has changed their mind, I don't know about it. But I do know about that. That is on the back of the book. And uh, years ago, when I was young, I got my copy, as many of us did, of John Dean, Berg uh, Dean John Bergen's book, The Last Twelve Verses of Mark. I was about 23 years old, and I took it home all excited, and I got about through 15 pages, and I thought, I can't read this thing. I was young, and I didn't have much experience at a lot of those things, and some of it was difficult. I picked it up a few years later and I managed to get my way through and I found it very persuasive. But the thing that strikes me about it is I kept having this burning question. If, if Bergon has such a strong position here, why has the whole scholarly world turned against his position? And that still bothers me a little bit. But I realize now that it's not the whole scholarly world. Now, it's most of the scholarly world, but it's not all of them. And the other thing about that is, is I think that Bergen, and I don't want to attribute it all to this, but Bergen has really kind of painted himself into a corner by the way that he argues the issue rhetorically. He was very scathing. And sometimes, especially when it came to the quotations of church fathers, which was a big part of the argument and still is, uh, he was not really quite completely balanced in his use of those quotations and the way that he used them. And I think it's a couple of things. Uh, one is just Bergen's rhetoric, for lack of a less derogatory term, that's part of it, and part of it is that a lot of scholarship has gone a long way, especially with the church fathers. So, but uh, that doesn't mean that everybody disagrees with the position that Mark 16, 9 through 20 ought to be there, but I may be getting off of your question here. I don't even remember who asked it. Uh, oh, George. Uh, 
But, uh, oh, but anyway, yes, Craig Evans, uh, he may have, uh, he may change his mind, I don't know, but he seems inclined to consider the possibility. Okay, Jonathan. Thank you, brother. I have two brief questions about what you said may happen in the future, uh, that translations may just take this out. In the ESV, and maybe other translations, there are already a few verses that are taken out without an asterisk or anything. They're just gone. Yeah. Is that an equivalent of what you think would happen? Uh, is that what, why they're doing that right now? Is, is they, they just think, well, it's not not enough evidence for it, so we're not even going to provide proof. We'll just take it out and people have to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't want to say just a blanket yes. It's a kind of a little more complicated than that. I think what it is that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is a passage that, as we've tried to point out this morning, has a lot in its favor. And I believe, when I said I'm in favor of the critical text, or at least that's the one I read the most or look at and refer to in my studies, um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, uh, those, those passages that you're talking, other passages that you're talking about, are not there because they simply are not in the Greek text that they're translating from. The case of Mark 16, it is in the critical text. They've double bracketed it. And so the translators keep it because it's there. But they bracket it because it's bracketed in the, in the text that they're reading, they're translating from. And so they're not inclined to explain every single time they vary from the textus receptus on the pa other passages that you're talking about simply because the critical text they're translating from, whether it's the Novum Testament of Graeke or the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, whichever one they're using, in those cases, they're just not in that text. Now, those, diff those passages that you're talking about may be down in the apparatus, down at the bottom of the page in the Greek text, but they have been relegated to the apparatus and not kept in the text. I don't know if I'm talking about things we're not familiar with. But, but I think that, and I've read some of what they say about the question you're asking is that they have not removed it from the text because it would cause such an outrage. I think that's part of the reason. Let's wrap it up. you have another question? Yes, sir. I'll make it quick. Uh, you kind of answered it about it's, this is more of a debate on history than on doctrine. If it were taken out completely, do we lose anything other than uh, another example of baptism, another example of how miraculous gifts were signed, confirming, etc.? There's other places where those doctrines are stated clearly. What do we lose if it's taken out? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I would answer that like this. I don't think there's any essential teaching of the Word of God, and I may, I'm, I'm saying this in a blanket statement, someone may correct me, and I stand corrected if it's true. I don't think there's any a teaching of the Word of God that relies on one passage. Uh, the proof of that is that you can take the New World Translation, which was done by the Jehovah's Witnesses, 
And they've attempted to translate the deity of Christ out of that translation. But I think I can take their translation of the New Testament, the New World Translation, I think I can take that translation and prove the deity of Christ. You can't translate it out of the Bible. Because the teachings of the Bible are pervasive, and I think it's that way on purpose. That's just my sense of the, of the divine orchestration of the Bible, is that the deity of Christ is everywhere. It's in the old. It's in the new. It's tucked away in passages in the old and the new where you really are not looking for it, but then when you start to really look closely, well, there it is. And especially in the way Paul quotes from the Old Testament, I'm getting aside here, I really think the answer to that question is I, we're not losing anything. Nothing that we stand for or abide by or that is essential to our life, our spiritual life, I don't think is missing or suddenly jeopardized by the absence of these verses. That's the answer to the question. On the other side of it is that if it's the Word of God, we don't want to see it go. Do you have some closing comments? Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> I originally thought I was going to have a great close here because I had a couple of things I wanted to point out real quick, and that is just to give you a quick, I'll make this quick, just a quick um, summation of things that you will read in, uh, well, I've got to get so there. Quick, we can't read. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you it was going to be. I want to just make the point, be skeptical of what you read, and I'll make this quick now that I'm there. Be skeptical of what you read. This is why it's a good idea to check things out before we quote people. I'll not say any more. I'll just go ahead here. Uh, Norman Geisler, a great apologist, great material, very helpful, in his big book of Bible difficulties, says verses 9 through 20 are lacking in many of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. Not true. There are two that we looked at, and there's one other, a later 12th century manuscript we didn't look at. It's two, three at the most in the, in the Greek. And we're not talking about the versions that Glenn brought up. Larry O. Richards, Bible Reader's Companion, says in many ancient Greek manuscripts, Mark's Gospel ends at verse 8. Not true. Wilfred Harrington, Record of Fulfillment, the New Testament. Verses 9 through 20 do not appear in very many Greek manuscripts. These fellows just haven't done their homework. They're going off of recollections that they've read from somebody else, sort of, a, we all do, do this, don't we? We're not being mean to these guys, we're just pointing out they're doing something, so we need to be careful, skeptical of what we read. Introduction to the New Testament literature, Donald Jewell. According to almost unanimous testimony of the oldest Greek manuscripts, Mark ends at 16.8. No. We have saw Codex W, Codex C, Codex A, Codex D, and then a list of others that were later, but Fenley Scott, Literature of the New Testament, verses 9 through 20, are found, listen to this, found in no early manuscripts. Not true. Eugene Peterson, footnote, the message translation. This section is contained only in later manuscripts. Not true. Rhodes, the complete book of Bible answers, 
Codex Alexandrinus does not contain Mark 16, 9 through 20. Factual error. It is in Alexandrinus. It's not in Vaticanus or Sinaiticus. This is just wrong. Grant, Robert Grant, a historical introduction to the New Testament, etc., etc. The text of Codex W contains a different ending entirely. Now you saw Codex W when I put the Freer Logion up here. It has verses 9 through 20 between verses 14 and 15, but it does not have a completely different ending entirely. It has verses 9 through 20 with the Freer Logion. Craig Evans, this is the guy that is on the back of the book. Maybe I should have put his statement up here because he does say this. Here's what he says in his own literature. Verses 9 through 20 were added at least two centuries after Mark first began. Well, we know that Irenaeus quoted it in the year 180, which is only about 100 years after Mark wrote it. This is the guy who on the back of Lund's book says, you know, Lund may have changed my mind. So that's how powerful the book is, to give my little plug another one for it. And so I'm going to close with that. <laughs>